Welcome to All Things Pilates, Season 4. Though we can't know exactly what Joseph Pilates was thinking or feeling towards the end of his life, we do know he wanted the entire world to practice Contrology, and that want has certainly become a reality. Hello all, I'm Darian Gold, and here on All Things Pilates, we discuss the man, the method, and how his genius continues to influence and inspire. When we think about people practicing the Pilates method or Contrology, most likely we imagine healthy bodies engaging their musculature and employing their minds to get the most out of each class. But what happens if the brain is impaired by disease or injury? Is it possible for the body to still get the benefits of Pilates? With us today to answer this question is Professor Mare Colbreth. She is the director of the Pilates Certificate Program at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, where she also serves as the assistant professor of the dance department. Well, that's a lot of responsibility. Hello, Mayor. <laughs> Hello. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Mayor, a few months back, I took a Neuro Pilates online workshop from you. And I was intrigued by how Pilates could be introduced to those who have neurological conditions. How did this workshop originate and what was your motivation in giving it? Great question. I, um, yes, I began once I actually, once I left San Francisco, I moved to North Carolina to work with my sister who had a traumatic brain injury. Uh, she had been in a car accident, was, uh, paralyzed, uh, on the right side and had a cervical spine fracture as well. So there was a lot happening there. That informed and began my practice, but being back in North Carolina, I was actually with uh, quite a few uh, clients in, in my Pilates studio there who suffered from Parkinson's. And so I began to seek connections between the work I was doing with my sister, Angela, with a traumatic brain injury and also the clients that I was working with, with Parkinson's. And then that just began to expand in terms of the clients that I worked with. Uh, so I began also seeing people with MS, stroke and other sort of idiopathic neurological issues, which has been now when I come back to San Francisco to teach uh, usually a couple of times a year, I get the most interesting clients because they know that I'm coming. And so they'll come in and they have some sort of neurological challenge. And sometimes they know what it is, sometimes they don't. And so we just work together to see how the Pilates method can really benefit their bodies and their movement. So Carol at Sanchez Street Studios has been a wonderful, she was my teacher, my mentor, and now uh, a colleague that I talk to all the time about this. And so we, I usually see her clients there who have some sort of neurological impairment. And 
she just said, let's do a workshop on this. And it turned out with a workshop that there were more teachers in there than there were actual clients, which was fine. Um, I enjoy actually teaching teachers. That is one of my passions. So can you describe in, in some sort of detail how movement and in particular Pilates actually helps someone who is suffering from a neurological condition? Yeah, I think that where, for me, where it really came from initially was the realization actually that the body can heal the brain. And so I think we are often working in our culture and in Western medicine from the idea that the the brain works the body. And so when I was working with Angela with the traumatic brain injury, she was so incredibly limited in what she could process, what she was able to do. We were going back to the very beginning. And what I found and what I also find with Parkinson's is that when I mobilize their bodies with certain um, patterns, that it seems to um, stimulate the brain in particular ways that help uh, increase the healing process. And it also creates new pathways is what that's what I believe is actually happening. I don't have the research data to, to show it yet. Um, but even specifically with Parkinson's, what I notice is that they're actually getting new, uh, new movement patterns that maybe didn't exist before. So it's almost as if a neural pathway is lighting up and making a connection to the brain around maybe the damaged neurons that Parkinson's um, people suffer from. Could you explain what Parkinson's disease is? Yes, uh, it is essentially a disease that impacts the neurons that produce dopamine in the brain. And dopamine is responsible for movement. It's also an emotional, um, it, uh, it responds and creates emotions as well, but it is the dopamine generator. So that's the feel, is that the feel good chemical? It is, but it's also the mo uh, movement, movement, a chemical that facilitates movement. Was there a neuro field of study already established at the University of Wisconsin, or did you have to develop your own? There is not a neuro field of study, and I often work with and read a lot of neuroscience. So some of this is just like when I get in with a client and there's something that I don't understand or don't know, then I kind of hit the journals of neuroscience to figure out what the mechanism is, specifically like with Parkinson's. Um, so really understanding that traumatic brain injury and Parkinson's though, it actually any challenge in the brain it may have a category like TBI, stroke, um, Parkinson's, but every single person is unique in the way that that manifests. So there are some things that you can look to um, that allow you to say, okay, I know that this sort of as a broad category um, is an issue and a challenge, and we can use these ways of engaging to do some rehabilitation or repatterning. I like to say re-education. But everybody is different. So it's really just the one-on-one -on -one, um, that I can find different ways. If something doesn't work, I just try something else, which is a part of our training, I think, as Pilates instructors, that we are with the body and in that moment and able to see what, how, what, what response you get. 
Your sister sounds like she was the conduit or she was your guinea pig that started (laughs) you down this path, correct? Yes, yes, she was. Uh, I think it was she's incredible too. She's the most, one of the most amazing people I know and is now like runs brain injury associations and has made a a really amazing um, recovery and does a lot of advocacy work in this uh, area. So she and I continue to work together because she still, she will always have a a brain injury, Uh, but she went from being in a coma for three months and unable to move, unable to eat or talk to now being, she's remarried, she has this work that she does. So she really inspired uh, the work, mostly because I could work directly with her. And uh, I just put her on a roller. Like as soon as she was out of the coma, I was like, okay, let's do this. I wanted her to be able to move again. And so we immediately started with a lot of cross-lateral patterning and work on the roller. I just thought, you know, if I can get her balance, back, then that that's where I'm just going to start. I'm going to start with balance. Uh, and so that actually has informed a lot of the work that I do because balance is one of the major challenges for any sort of neuro um, neurological issue. That's very interesting. Did you just intuitively know that you went to the prop, the foam roller, opposed to putting her on a reformer? So she would feel stability and safety. Yeah, we we didn't have access to that. We I me I moved back to North Carolina, and at that point in time, I was just you know we were like getting to the bathroom was a challenge. So it was just a process of being in the house and figuring out how to get through each day with a lot of support. So that was the definitely the first thing I did. And then we did go into the studio once uh, she was in a able to go out and do other things. So, yeah, but she was fine with the roller. I mean, it was really interesting because I, I think my belief around the balance and just what I know with the roller, it was close to the floor. It felt like a good place for her intrinsic core muscles to kind of come back into action after she had been in the bed for three months. So, Yeah, it worked. I don't know if I would start there uh, again now that I've done the work that I've done, but it's where we began. What percentage is she in terms of recovery? Oh, that's a great question. I would say uh, she is fully capable of functioning. She has a a very, I'd say, normal life. Uh, The challenges that still exist are a double vision that she's working on still right now. And short-term memory, that's still a challenge. But she's incredible in the strategies that she does to kind of mitigate the short-term memory. So she has a lot of things in place and she also still moves every day. And that's a part of her um, practice of moving and being in meditation and taking care of her brain to continue healing on a daily basis. And that for me, you know, it was right about the time that I started to get into all of the neuroplasticity research, um, which was great because we had gone for so long thinking that the brain was hardwired. And then all of this research began coming out because people would be like, if you have a traumatic brain injury or if you have Parkinson's, 
you know, they're basically like, throw up your hands. There's nothing we can do. It's just going to be this way. And it's probably going to get worse. And I just didn't believe that actually. <laughs> and I saw it to be true. That's, I'm glad that you didn't believe it. And <laughs> a medical establishment thinking and mindset, let's just say it's quite old and it needs to be revamped, especially what's happening now in our current state. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And I also think the Western uh, medical paradigm is not, uh, let's see, how would you say it's, it's not engaged with movement. Uh, but the great part is I was at Stanford and did clinical research there with an, on an NIH grant. And basically it was looking at movement as uh, for older adults and aging. So, but, you know, what we know to be true now, and that seems to be just sort of status quo. Back then it wasn't. And so it was the first time that I worked with, um, I worked with medical doctors, psychologists, exercise physiologists, clinical researchers, and we gathered a ton of data um, to see basically what a basic movement program would do. And that got me on the, the bandwagon, I guess. I mean, I'd always been a mover and I believed fully in movement and that that's how we experience the world and it's how we live and move through life. And so that work though was really great because I was like, oh yeah, actually here's the data that shows that movement <laughs> makes a difference in cognition. Uh, it makes a difference in social outcomes. It makes a difference in your mental abilities, capabilities, and it had a major impact on, on mortality. Did you grow up as a dancer? Did you have that early on? I did, yes. My grandmother was a dancer. She taught cotillion in the South. So, <laughs> um, so my dad, this was my dad's mom, and he put me into dance when I was probably two or three. And I had been dancing ever since. And then I went into engineering for my undergrad because I loved science. And I thought, well, this is probably a better way to make a career than being a dancer. <laughs> and so that was the path that I took and then very quickly realized that I was so interested in movement uh, to the point that, you know, I would be working in my engineering program and I'm watching people walk down the hallway and, and noticing, you know, the biomechanics of their movement. So that led me into the master's in kinesiology, which was much more of a, a focus on human movement. So I think I look at it sort of through the prism of what are the, you know, the physiology of it? What's the social impact of movement? How does that impact our body? What's the psychology of movement? Um, really kind of taking that holistic view of the body uh, and of ourselves as embodied beings. Your, your life path was set at two or three. Don't you? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do. And I tried to go away from it like a thousand times because our society also, because the body is marginalized and not valued, we, you know, I was like, oh, I can't be a dancer. I can't do this. And that's not really using my brain. And so that's kind of the fun irony in this is that in fact, it's the body now that I work with to heal the brain. So hundred percent irony. <laughs> Your Pilates certificate program at the university. Did it exist before you? 
It was in process. They were getting, you have to go through, you know, years of going to different parts of the the school and the institution to establish a new curriculum. And so my colleagues are actually Pilates instructors as well. And they had started the program and then it basically landed in my lap uh, to create the syllabi and kind of the trajectory or the arc of this. Did you feel ready and prepared just to step into that role? Yes. Um, and we're still figuring it out. I mean, I love working with dancers because they do have use their this, brains. <laughs> yes. Deep, deep kinesthetic intelligence. And then also as a you know professional dancer in San Francisco, I said, well, this is actually Pilates. This is how I made my living. <laughs> so it's a great, and it also kept me dancing. Pilates did. So, it, you know, keeps a healthy body. I of course went to Carol to talk to her about uh, the program and it's not a, you know, as, I think because the Pilates world, I don't even know what's happening actually in terms of trainings and whatnot, but it is a certificate. uh, It's a wild, wild west. It is. I know. So I was like, we're just going to give you these courses. They take an incredible applied anatomy class with my colleague, Maria, and then quite a bit of observation and all the things that we know in, in this certificate program. So yes, it is exciting. Now, do you, you teach the mat work and then all the apparatus, some of the apparatus, what you feel is the most important? We have it all. So we have a studio in our, at the university and it has all of the apparatus and my tendency from a training perspective, I don't, again, I don't know kind of what the norm is right now, but I like to teach the exercises across um, the apparatus and mat, mostly because I think with all of the people that I work with, doing things the way that you just learned it doesn't always work. <laughs> and so I have to do quite a lot of, okay, this doesn't work here. Exactly. I'm an improviser extraordinaire <laughs> as we are in our field. And so, yes, I, we have them do mat class, I think, first, and then that when they move into apparatus, um, they're also looking at that kind of across and then watching the mat class again. So, yeah, we'll see. We're, we're experimenting with the program right now and just getting it started. I, I'm curious if you have Joe's book, Return to Life, if you follow his mat order in terms of learning his method. Uh, yes. So the, actually, uh, we have, uh, an instructor who teaches and she follows the return to life for the Mac classes. I am incredibly unconventional. <laughs> and so there are some things that I think, I think the combination of Pilates and then my kinesiology work has just led me to maybe order things differently. Like when I look at something, I think, okay, the skill, you know, and, and what he did makes a lot of sense, but also what I know to be true is that bodies change over time. And so the bodies that we are working with today are not the bodies that Joe was working with then. That being said, uh, I think that there is a wisdom in the architecture of his method and it makes a lot of sense how it progresses. And so I think I use that as a model for skill progression 
But again, with neurological issues, it becomes a little bit more complicated um, because you may not have the ability to, again, the ability to do this one thing. And then people go, oh, I don't know what to do. And you're like, but if you know that this is this over here and you can do this and this, and that, you know, so it just is a way you have to kind of think a little bit more um, integrative or sort of kind of put piecing different things together. That's, that's the feedback that I get actually when I teach teachers, uh, they say, they're like, you do kind of the most unorthodox things actually. And it feels like you're pulling from all of these different, um, modalities, which I probably am because it's like, what's going to work here. What can I make happen? That is going to be profound in this particular body. One of the things we did in the workshop that it it may it reminded me of some of the vagus nerve exercises. Those of us who suffered from uh, cog- cognitive and other issues with COVID, you did that one exercise. I think we were standing at the wall, and one leg was back, and then you had us turn our head, and then our eye, only our eye. Something is is that. Yeah, remembering so. that correctly. Yes, I think you are. I, I don't actually remember all the things because I was <laughs> that I taught in that one, but yeah, I think so. Can you say more about the role of the eyes in terms of what is happening in the brain? Because uh, of course, I'm still learning about this, especially just coming out of this um, experience. But yeah. we were taught, for example, if you're just sitting to uh, have your eyes travel one direction without changing your head. Mm -hmm. So is that movement of just the isolating the eyes, is that doing something different? Is there a different signal happening in the brain? Yeah, there is. And this is uh, sort of the work that I'm just getting into now. And part of it is following Angela's path and and figuring out, yes, what's happening with her uh, double vision because she has lived with that since the accident in 2008. And so a lot of the research that I'm doing right now, and and actually I have some teachers that I follow as well who have the, they call it the neuro studio. Mariska Breland and Megan Duffy, and they have been incorporating the eyes. I started doing it from a balance, uh, from a lot of balance exercises that I was working with. And then I started playing with it um, with a few clients, primarily because, well, Often I will work with what it means to focus and track and be able to turn your head, but then also have a point, which is something that we do in dance, actually. It's uh, just called spotting. Uh, And then playing with what they were telling me was that they tended to fall uh, when they were crossing the street. And so this, of course, was a very unsafe situation and very scary for them. And so a part of what I was recognizing was that it had a lot to do with Um, the way that the eyes were working and also because they started uh, looking both ways and then also trying to move at the same time. So something wonderful is happening when we do these exercises. And of course, I, I probably can't explain the mechanism completely right now, 
but I find that it just, uh, it's, it, it, when I go through the exercises, I can do kind of a baseline assessment and then I take somebody through the eye exercises and then they actually have their, um, mobility or ability to track and to have a, a more na- a normal gait is totally increased. So most of the work is anecdotal in that, you know, I just try it out on my amazing clients who let me do crazy things with them. Um, but I mean, definitely the turning the head, um, for crossing the street is, um, that's obviously changing both vision and vestibular. And so as I tell sort of the basics, my like 101 balance workshop class, I'm like, you have vestibular vision and proprioception, and you need two of those to be spot on and working really well. At, to be able to have good balance because many people need, you know, they, they come to me and they're like, I'm never going to have good balance. What can I do? And I'm like, this is a daily practice. And so also when you know which of those two, you're maybe cha- if you're challenging two of them at the same time, so you're only left with one, then you can actually stop. And so I have those clients actually break it down. So I don't have them step until after they've looked to cross the street and then they bring their eyes back to focus front and then step across the street. That seems extremely vital. It and- is, yes. It was a profound realization, uh, because it is so scary. I think that's that when, when these clients and these human beings are trying to make their way through the world and navigate our world with all of its complexities and, um, dangers, (laughs) it becomes, and, you know, that's what I love too, when I'm working with Parkinson's is there are because of the way that it manifests in the body, there are quite a lot of postural and gait issues that really shift. And so those, you know, Pilates has some really incredible work for that. And and I think that alone, just doing that postural and gait work with my Pilates clients, that alone would keep them so much more functional um, than if they were to just take this diagnosis and be like, all right, here we go, which is generally what happens for them. Are you including this research in your Pilates program? And is there, by the way, a neuro Pilates portion of your program? Um, yeah I I know (laughs) well what I what I love actually about the neurological work is it gives me so much insight into a more general population so we are all neurological and the neurological impact of Pilates and the way that it can work is great for everybody you don't actually have to have a neurological condition Um, and in fact what I find to be true is that it, it gives me much more insight to somebody who may not be showing any symptoms of anything, um, but I'm able to actually get some better outcomes because of the information that I've gathered from this population. So um, to answer your question, though, uh, the certificate program probably does not currently have a neuro Pilates. I, it is something that I am developing through Carol and uh, doing that a little bit more um, on my own. I do it in my private practice and then also in the workshops and the classes that I teach. You have your own 
private practice and you teach this program at the university. Yes. Yes. If somebody wanted to learn what you're teaching at the university and they weren't enrolled at the school, can they still mm -hmm. come or do they that those type of people come to you in your studio? Yes. Yeah. So um, I have. Yes, the program is for students or, you know, I have some who have just graduated who are doing a post back uh, just so they can do the Pilates certificate, I think. Uh, so you have to be enrolled in the university for that. I, you know, I've thought about training programs. I feel like I love Carol's training program. And so I, if I can do anything, what I think I would love to do is sort of do a, a, a neuro Pilates focus sort of within that, um, within that training program. What do you see happening in the future in terms of your influence at the university opposed to your influence in your own practice? Because they're both going down different paths, even though it's the same, you know, subject matter. I think, and one of the benefits of being in the university system that I've learned, right, is that there's quite a you know, lot of funding for research. So I think oh, follow the money. <laughs> yes, that would be my um, I think my impulse would be to kind of work within that institution to maybe actually create some research studies around these ideas. You know, like I was saying before, with the Parkinson's and doing actually I've been doing some research lately on uh, forced movement versus voluntary movement with Parkinson's. And the outcomes are really interesting. So give an example, give an example. Yeah. So, well, two things that I do with my Parkinson's uh, clients. One is that I'm incredibly specific, which is funny because that's not me really in movements sometimes, but they, I say, you know, I want you to utilize, I want you to feel this muscle right here, get your leg to here. And sometimes they can't even do that for weeks, but just the actual like task of trying to do that. And then I'll do the motion. So it's a, a little bit like what we see maybe in more conventional forms of uh, physical therapy, where you do actually mobilize, but doing that forced movement and having them feel the pattern starts to create the neural pathways and reconnect to the brain. So that has been, and then the other sort of um, classic one that I'm looking at, which is not Pilates related, but it's uh, writing cycling uh, on a tandem bike. So if I am riding and I have someone with Parkinson's on the tandem behind me, uh, then I can go at a faster RPM and they are keeping up with me, but it's not their voluntary speed. And that actually um, ends up creating uh, a long lasting effects. So I've been looking and I think with Parkinson's, you know, I think I just started also looking at the other move. I am a cyclist, so it was it, it was great research to to come upon. Uh, but looking at the impact of cardiovascular exercises as well, um, so not just limiting it to Pilates. Although Pilates is really where the movement repatterning and the movement education and the new neural pathways come from for me. Well, for example, you're working with a a client who has Parkinson's, can he or she 
tell you what they're actually feeling. If you, if you point to a muscle and you want them to engage it, can they describe that they are feeling something or after you facilitate a motion or a full movement, are they able to articulate what it is they're sensing? Yes. And sometimes it's incredibly frustrating because they know what I want them to do and they can't at that point make it happen. And so between, and when I really, when I poke and I do poke uh, at their muscles as a proprioceptive sort of uh, giving them that information so they can feel it, they can feel where I'm talking about. Uh, where I want them to contract the muscle or to to generate force from that place. You know, we'll sometimes do if that exercise doesn't work or if that if they cannot do that, we continue to do that repeatedly over and over again for days at a time. And we keep coming back to it. They may not do it. Mm -hmm. They don't mind repetition. No, (laughs) no, I think they've gotten used to that um, with me. But some of that comes from a lot of the Franklin work that I study, but imagery, you know, actually what imagery does uh, in your physiology. So for me, I said, it doesn't matter if it moves or not. What I want you to do is I want you to try to move it. And, And I think because of how long it took for my sister to make progress, I got comfortable with the amount of time that it actually, sometimes it takes a long time to reestablish those um, pathways or to create new neural pathways. But I said, you know, what I say to them, I'm like, if you are in this position and you are like working right now, just like focused on this, you're doing the work. I don't care if the movement happens or not yet. What we're going to do, I'm going to move you through it so you can feel it. So we can check, you know, range of motion. You can get a sense of where you, your proprioception, where you are in space. Um, oftentimes this is with when I have um, feet and straps too, uh, because getting that, you know, when we do kind of the box in the straps or um, big circles, getting really that specificity of movement and knowing where they are in space comes from that closed um, kinematic chain and the proprioception on the bottom of their foot. And they really have to work um, to find that. And, And being so specific, does more work than being like, oh, okay, that was a, that was kind of a rectangle, you know, that's fine. You moved. Um, this is a place where I'm really like, no, I want you over here and I want this foot to come over here and I want you to see it and make it happen. So yeah, it just takes time. So I'm, I'm imagining someone who doesn't have much control over his legs, let's say, and you want mm-hmm. his feet are in the straps and you're on the Cadillac and you're doing leg springs for example, and he doesn't have the strength mm-hmm. or the ability to do what you're asking if you're not facilitating it. Then at that point, do you do the exercise with him and then have him not do the exercise, but imagine the shape in his head? And is the imagination or the image of the shape of the exercise, is that helping the connectors? Yeah, I I think it is. That's my belief, right, is that there is actual work happening in terms of laying and making those connections, even if you're not seeing movement. Right. And so I I say this with people just the same, much in the same way, right, that Pilates said, you know, he would stand there and you would just find your intrinsic 
core muscles and no movement has to happen. And so, and I work with a lot of people with uh, limitations in movement. And so some of that is just actually figuring out how to fire those muscles without movement and, and figuring out how to make those connections. It's interesting that you said leg springs, because it just made me think of um, leg springs are really different for a person with Parkinson's as opposed to legs uh, like straps uh, on the reformer. And I would say I use them very differently, even though they are similar, you know, you can do similar exercises on there. Um, a part of the challenge with the leg springs is um, because of the trimmer, you get a whole lot more bouncing in the springs. And that can be really frustrating, but it can also be really good because it creates a bit of a, a almost a vibration and a vibration is a great sort of form of therapy for stimulator, right? Exactly. Spasticity and also tremor. Spasticity is with MS and then tremor is with um, Parkinson's. But when I'm really kind of working on the specific, like get your feet here to make this rectangle, I find that the reformer leg straps are better because they're holding that joint in place and they're giving a different um, feedback. Yeah, that allows the trimmer to subside a little bit more, whereas you may see it amplify with the leg springs. The trimmer tends to be more at rest and so what's really beautiful when I work with somebody with Parkinson's is that uh, one of the ways that I um, give them actually some relief is uh, having them stand on the half BOSU ball uh, with the flat, hard surface on the top and the ball, which I, I mean, if you imagine that normally when I put regular <laughs> clients with no neurological challenges, they have a hard time like stabilizing the ball. When I would put my Parkinson's client on there, it was like stillness. It was like the still, the most calm water you've ever seen. It, it's like, and he, you know, you could see him like breathing and just taking that. Oh, okay. Like the body just wow. gave him. It was, yeah. So, it, and I think I understand that to be, um, well, it's not being at rest, right? There is a lot, but I'm, but I'm also thinking too, that because of all of the intrinsic muscles that are being stimulated at that, in, in that exercise of just standing on a BOSU ball, that it kind of flips the switch. It's more research it's on that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> I think I need to actually pair up with a neuroscientist so that I can do this research. Yes. There's, there's much that yes. you're going to contribute, I think, in the Pilates community and movement and dance for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. I, I definitely hope to, I had actually, oops, um, I had a client recently who came to me who has had, um, tremors uh, uh, and really starting to struggle to walk. And they actually, this came from um, a medication 20 years ago and it seems to be, and so this was the first time that I've worked with somebody who has essentially the movements, symptoms or movement challenges of somebody with Parkinson's, but it wasn't Parkinson's. And it was, it was incredible because I just kind of went through the protocol that I do and I had him first walk and it was just like, you know, side to side up and down, like it was a, a, a nerve wracking situation to walk through the studio. And then within 20 minutes of the work, 
um, that we did, he walked straight forward towards the door. I don't know how long it lasted. Um, and that's one of the challenges, right? Is that you get to, so if, if over time, I wonder the longevity of it, that then they get the longer um, relief. So yeah, another, another project. <laughs> and you're, do- you're documenting all of this. I am. I mean, from a note, yeah, from a note taking perspective and you know, you'd be surprised too. I think we think of all of these diagnoses as being like, so, I mean, yeah, specific, like we have these very clear categories. I find now that I'm just getting so much more of the idiopathic neurological condition that people are like, I have gone to doctor after doctor after doctor, and there's neuropathy, there's this tremor, there's all of this, and they cannot figure it out. And so they end up with me (laughs) and I go, okay, doesn't matter what the diagnosis is, right? I mean, we can, you know, it's great that you rule things out and we, that gives us information in terms of, you know, maybe what to do, but we can do this work and we you can experience benefit from it um, regardless of what the, what the diagnosis is or isn't. Do you plan on giving more workshops? Because I'm thinking of perhaps teachers who are listening, who have clients with neurological issues. Do you plan on offering more? And if so, how do those types of teachers get in touch with you? Yes, (laughs) I would love to. I mean, a part of the work, I think, and this is what I found when I did the workshop with you, that it really helps me to be in conversation and with to, in order to articulate and to try to clear, maybe even codify something of a protocol. I, I think it, right now, because I'm so used to working one-on-one, I mean, there are some things that I can do that are very much across the board, like this works for balance. This is how I work for, you know, trimmer. This is how I work for this. Um, yes, I would love to continue doing this. I am working on my website, which will Woo-hoo. be mayorcolbreth.com. Excellent. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. And so I will continue developing this. This has been really helpful to think about it um, in this conversation. So thank you for that. And Yes. Well, it is. Okay. So hold on a second. Yeah. Okay. Our, go ahead. Uh, your website is not up yet. Correct. It will be. It's not live. It's not live yet, but it should be in the within the next month. Because how does someone want if someone wants to talk to you right now? Oh well, they can absolutely email me right now. <laughs> Which is uh, it is C U L B as in boy R E T as in Tom. Amazon mom at uwm.edu. And I love when people reach out and ask questions and it really, it's where I get um, much of my thinking and solidifying what I'm, what I'm doing. And, you know, I mean, I'm even just thinking about this client that I have right now who, who, who is amazing. And she came to me and she was like, I only, you know, I need to see you. I had a broken pelvis 20 years ago and I'm in incredible pain if I don't do Pilates. And so right off the top, I was like, well, you know, this isn't necessarily a neurological person. And I'm kind of like, I was like, I'm not so sure, but 
right away, um, I noticed some things that were really different uh, based on this injury. And then she fell and broke her clavicle. And then they found bone cancer at the same time. And so, I, you know, I'm just thinking about that. And so now she's like dealing with a ton of um, nerve um, nerve issues, like um, the neuropathy that's coming in and then also doing radiation at the same time. So it was just like one thing after another. And again, the beauty of it is that, you know, she's consistent. She comes, she's like, if I don't do this, I will not be moving and I will be basically on the way to my grave. <laughs> and as soon as you stop, that's what I tell people, you know, when I'm working with my, and I think I've always had a passion for working with older adults. I have since my twenties, because number one, they're usually so smart about life. So I, I get a lot of <laughs> life advice from them, but they also, I, I was able to notice, I think that all the things that we think about with aging, and this is the same with these neurological conditions is not necessarily a function of aging. A lot of times it's a function of having faulty movement patterns or um, being, you know, having these injuries that don't get rehabilitated and in, in fully in ways that they need to. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I'm doing some a lot of neurological work with her now because I can actually see how the radiation is affecting her brain. So we're doing the Pilates that I do for neurology so that that neuroplasticity can really. It's all around you, Mayor. It is. It is. You. It is. Yes. Yes. It's so awesome. And thank you so much for your time today. I think you've given a lot of new information for the, those of us who are working with bodies every day and wanting to know more about what's possible and how, how better we can help our clients. So thank Great. you. Thank you so much for this. Once again, it is Professor Mare Colbreth. Yes. Just think hair, your hair, but Mare. Thank you. All Things Pilates is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Darian Gold. Mastered audio mix by Fabian Romero. Theme music, Soul Blue Piano Shuffle by Boom Zoom. The brain and mind coexist. Maintaining a healthy brain requires a commitment to eating well, limiting alcohol and other substances that alter the brain's chemistry, and then there is the mind. The mind is connected energetically to the heart, Mind and heart coherence will create harmonious expression, but they too need nourishment. So make sure to hold only life-affirming thoughts and emotions. As always, I remain in awe of Joe's work, and I look forward to being with you again for another episode of All Things Pilates. Pilates.